This is the Find Your Forte podcast, episode 34. Spend more time uh, thinking about, uh, spend more time being a teacher and less time being a conductor. Value that which is not the note and the rhythm. Value that which is the word. Value that which is the person. Value that which is the country, the tradition. These things matter, and these things will connect with your singers in ways that the music sometimes can, but can't always. You have the passion. You have the education. Now it's time for the inspiration. Get ready to step up to the podium with purpose. This is the Find Your Forte podcast with choral director and lifestyle entrepreneur, Ryan Guth. Hey there, Choir Nation. This is Ryan Guth with the Find Your Forte podcast. I am so incredibly excited to bring to you today an interview with Dr. Paul Rairdin from Temple University. I want to make sure that you know that his full bio and show notes for today's episode will be over at www.ryanguth.com forward slash 034. Uh, there you will you will get relevant links to things that were discussed in today's episode. Also, the bio, contact information for Paul, and uh, whatever else we may we may talk about today. So I'm going to just bring it right into the interview right now and just say, Paul, Choir Nation is ready. They're at the edge of their chairs, folders open, and looking your way. Are you ready to deliver the downbeat? Bring it, baby. <laughs> That's great. That actually might be one of my favorite responses to this. This is, this is fantastic. This is going so well already. Well, Paul, um, the downbeat segment is our biographical segment, um, but I, I first want to start I used to read bios, and I'm, I'm not going to read bios anymore. Um, I want to actually just find out from you. When somebody says, hey, Paul, nice to meet you, what, what is it that you do for a living? What do you tell them? You know, that's a good question. I think my, my most frequent response is I teach music. Often when I'm asked that, it's in a social situation in which I'm not surrounded by musicians, and I know that when I'm meeting somebody for the first time, it's useful for them to put it in bare bones what they do. If they're an accountant or if they're uh, an engineer, I'm going to have trouble remembering what they are unless they really dumb it down for me. So I try to keep it simple by saying I teach music, but that it's a great reflection of what I do. Um, I conduct a college choir, and I have a a magnificent community chorus. Both are wonderful ensembles here in Philadelphia. Um, and I've been doing this for 22-some years out of graduate school, but the older I get, the more I realize the, the balance of conducting to teaching. I'm swinging more and more toward the teaching pendulum, which is an exciting, um, not instinctive thing for me when I started my career. But, uh, but I, I, So when I say I teach music, I think that is, I hope, the most accurate reflection of, of the summary of rehearsing and preparing and all of the things that we as choral conductors do. All right, Paul, that's a really humble answer, and I, I've been struggling with this one myself because, you know, I teach, and I, I've never actually looked at it as I teach music. Um, I've always said, like, I'm a conductor, or mm. have you ever used that I'm a conductor before? You, I don't know that I have, um, and, and I think it goes back to the same uh, the. Uh, the same issue of, you know, what do you do when you break it down to its essence? Whenever I meet somebody, especially if they're a non-musician, if I say I teach music, they instantly understand. I think the the term conductor for many is has still kind of a mystique to it. Um, 
and whereby I, actually I, I it would be interesting to try responding with I'm a conductor because I do think that would that might engage more kinds of questions mm. about what does a conductor do well it isn't being a conductor really easy don't you just get up there and flap your arms and and people clap at you right uh, <laughs> well you know I, I've recently so I recently moved to New York and and so I'm in these different social circles now and people say what do you do and this is why I'm so fascinated by yeah. by this question. And I say, I, I don't know what to say at this point. I'm a podcaster, I'm a conductor, I'm a music teacher, I'm a, I, don't, I, I own a business. I, I don't know what to say. And I've, so I've been going with, because of the mystique, I'm in New York. I'm yeah, like, right. I'm, I'm a conductor. <laughs> but I always have to follow up with like, you know, not choo-choo, like right. not that kind of conductor. And I also don't, I'm not a conduit for electricity. Or <laughs> Exa- right, exactly, exactly. I'm a semiconductor, actually. Right, exactly. I'm germanium or something. Um, uh, <laughs> But, uh, you know, and then they start flapping their arms and I go, okay, you know what? This is going to be a really long conversation. Um, and I think I'm going to take up I Teach Music. I, I like that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use your suggestion. I, I think it may be a more of a door opener than I'm a conductor. Yeah. Um, I, I think it may, it may invite, and of course, obviously you have to plan how much time do I intend to speak with this person depending on the, <laughs> the, the situation. But I, I do think there's more humility, perhaps, in saying I'm uh, I teach music. Yes, I believe that it might is. Invite the question. Just as someone, if someone says I'm an engineer, that gives me the opportunity. If I have a clue what the word engineer means, I can follow up and say, Oh, what kind of engineering? But if I don't, and I'm worried about it, I can say, Oh, well, that's wonderful. Have a good evening, and then you know, go off to someone else at the cocktail party. Um, but I, I think I teach music has, has some universality to it and uh, could invite further further conversation. You know, it's interesting. I love that you asked the question because I'm not sure I had ever thought about how I how I answer that. But when I think about it, I believe I am pretty consistent with I teach music. And then if they have further questions, I'll tell them. And you don't feel like and, and this is um, you don't feel like that dumbs down your education. I, I, I think it actually elevates it. Good. And, you know, when we, I, I, I would imagine deeper into the conversation, we'll go into some of the things that, that uh, were inspirational or on the opposite side were, were terrifying to me, things I did wrong. Um, I think more and more my, res- I, my responsibility uh, and my joy lies in the teaching side of things so that I, I would hope that conductors would aspire to, uh, to being teachers first. That may be a little bit of a cliche, but I, but I, I really really do believe that no matter the level. I find that singers are interested in, um, in composers, in countries, in world history, and that if I, can, if I can hook somebody on this European war or this conflict that William Byrd was having between his Catholic self and, and working in a Protestant uh, environment, if I can hook somebody through that that I can't through, you know, hemiola, or, or some technical term, mm-hmm. then that, that's a win. And, and that can connect with somebody in a way that maybe the musical language can't. So uh, in, in one sense, it does dumb it down in that it's, it's, a, uh, it's a very broad, generic answer. Mm-hmm. In the other sense, uh, but, I, but I do think it's something to which I certainly want to aspire as a conductor, and I'm, I'm fine calling myself that as well. But when I'm good, when I have my good days uh, doing my job, the, the, or I'll say that the best days are days in which I come out of there feeling like I gave them something more than just the music's a little tighter than it was two hours ago. That's a wonderful answer. Paul, this, is, this has been such a wonderful warm-up. 
All right. So I am excited to get into the downbeat segment. I'm, I'm, I'm pumped at this point. <laughs> Thank you. All right. So the downbeat segment is our biographical segment. So I want to talk to you about the moment that you knew you were going to dedicate your life to music. Was there anything holding you back from following your dreams? Uh, the answer is no, there was nothing holding me back. And and before I go anywhere, I just have to say at every point in my life, the, the support of my parents and my family for what I've done has been uh, constant and, and very much appreciated. Um, I think the moment when I realized I, it, it was, it, there was not an aha moment for me until graduate school. There were a number of maybe, ooh, I'm curious in this moments leading up to that, going all the way back to middle school, I'm sure. But the aha moment for me was more an aha of what I'm not good at <laughs> and why I like conducting. I went to graduate school as a composer. That was my, t I, I, I'll say it in front of the world now, but that was my ticket into grad school. It's what in music I did best that could get me into graduate school. I had a feeling that conducting was probably high on my list for what I wanted to do with my career, but, uh, but uh, certainly did not have the pedigree to be able to get accepted uh, uh, to graduate programs in conducting. So it was composition. And the way I would compose would be I'm, I'm, I'm dreadfully anally retentive when it comes to composition. I'm getting better. But I start in bar one, and if after an hour I haven't made it into bar two, I'm done for the day. I, for the longest time, I couldn't sketch. I couldn't just blurt out an idea, flawed as it was, and come back to it the next day. So that made for a very lengthy and lonely process for me. And I will, can remember as clear as I'm talking to you right now where I was sitting in the University of Michigan library, music library, in a carol, trying to figure out why I couldn't get on to measure two or measure three, and thinking, why don't I enjoy this? Why do I enjoy conducting more? And then the proverbial light bulb moment was realized, well, conducting is with people. Composing isn't. And it was a long time for me, because I composed so slowly, it was a long time before we got from a piece being started to a piece being completed to me having the chance to work with performers to conduct it. And that brought me great joy. But there were so few and, and far between because I composed so badly and so slowly <laughs> that it just took a long time. When I had that moment of realizing conducting is with people, that's why I'm enjoying my conducting class more than, than uh, my composition. I knew right then and there that I needed to go speak with my, my conducting teacher and ask him about applying to the master's program in conducting, and that's what started that trajectory. So do you feel like, is this like an introvert-extrovert thing then for you? You know, <laughs> it, it, that's a great question. I think, I think if you polled a lot of my singers, I think I have a very extroverted pe personality on the podium. Mm-hmm. The people who know me well, I'm not sure they'd describe me as an extrovert when we're, when we're having conversations outside of that. I, I absolutely do have a shy side, and, and I, have to, I have to actually honor and respect that. There are times when I would rather be, uh, in, and not just sometimes for musical reasons, just to get my head together before a concert, but sometimes I just in, in, do enjoy this, uh, the solitude temporarily. But being with people is what, is what feeds me. So I'm not sure it's as simple as... as um, introvert, extrovert, because I think maybe I have both qualities and, and they just come out in, in different ways at different times. I think research has indicated that there's sort of adaptive uh, introvert, extrovert, you know, depending on the social situation and things like that. So so that's most Got likely it. what it is. And I approve of that research. There you go. Well, listen, this whole, I'm, I'm interested in, in finding out a little bit more about this 
measure one to measure two thing. Yeah. Because um, do, do you feel like like you you don't want to get too far into into something if it's not perfect yes. from the beginning? Exactly. So almost like it's like right. It's like um, I mean every great every great writer. Um, especially uh, the, uh, Stephen Pressfield is one of my favorite. Um, he wrote a book called um, The War of Art, which I would recommend to everybody listening to this podcast. It's a very short book, but he talks about, you know, he talks about the fact that, that you, just, you, just need, you just need to do it. You just need to write. You just need to get out there. Yes. And, and it's okay if it's wrong. It's okay if it's not, if it's not perfect. You know, I think uh, in... Uh, what is the artist's way? The uh, Julia Cameron book, The Artist's Way. Um, she tells you to write a daily journal by hand, not mm. not on on uh, word processor because you edit when you write on when you when you type, <laughs> you edit, you backspace, and you go, "This is crap." I'm just gonna just backspace this whole paragraph and and start over again. And the idea of writing by hand, and I'm wondering if composers feel the same way if they write by hand. You can you can gush more onto the page and edit later as opposed to writing on finale where you can go, ugh, this is just not this is just not what I want, and just select all, delete, and then and then everything you worked on for the last two hours was for naught. Right. Well, to get to your original point, it, what you're describing is exactly right, and exactly why I was struggling because I felt it needed to be perfect. I mean, it, it was a uh, I mean, University of Michigan is a fantastic school. I was surrounded by great composers, and I, I wanted to put forth stuff that was good. I did not have the skill yet of of um, sketching, of being able to put something out that uh, even even if there's a kernel of it that might be okay, I'm I'm better at doing that now, and that is so heartening to me that even when I do have the opportunity to compose or arrange. I catch myself so much more regularly now having that thought that I did back in that library. Ooh, is this right? Is this going to be good enough? And then thinking, fight through it, man. Mm-hmm. Fight through it. There's probably a kernel of something that's good or you wouldn't have thought of it. So uh, get through it or jump to a different section and sketch something there. And there I think the full, and it almost doesn't matter what medium, whether you're writing by hand or whether you're using finale. I think folks get good at sketching in all kinds of different ways. Um, but I'm... Uh, I, it, it, when I look at that side of my personality, it's sort of a slam dunk as to why I went into conducting. In conducting, by and large, and there are some great examples of the opposite of this, but by and large, we are being faithful to a score. We are the vessel for a composer mm-hmm. to an existing on-print thing that's complete, that's done. And there, our job is to recreate uh, that thing that's on the, on the page. And that's where my creativity was more comfortable kicking in with recognizing because the piece was done. <laughs> right. I didn't, I didn't have to create anything. I needed to learn how to teach it. And that took uh, obviously some doing. And I think if I could go back to the very first rehearsals I ever led as a collegiate choral conductor, um, I think I, w- I would revoke my entire career just to see th- how, many, how many mistakes I made and how uh, in many ways ill-equipped I was for that first rehearsal. But I had something. I had a spark of energy. I had passion for what I did. And that carried me through just as a sketching, even a flawed idea can carry you through a composition. Conducting when you don't have the full set of tools yet, you know what? That's okay. None of us does when we start. Not a single one of us. And we learn by watching and doing and observing. 
Well, let's 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 jump down that road uh, of revoking your career, <laughs> <laughs> and let's talk about a, a story of of when things didn't go uh, as as planned. Uh, potentially looking back, mm-hmm. you know, I, I I I've been recently saying this on the podcast that uh, there's no such thing as failure, only feedback. Nice, right? Nice, and. Uh, and so is there, is there a time you got some extra special feedback you want to share with us? <laughs> I have two, t- uh, two things come to mind. Um, one was early in my career and another was sort of at a midpoint in the career. The early career was preparing a Brahms Requiem. I was in Baltimore and I was preparing it for the magnificent uh, Baltimore Choral Arts Society and their hired orchestra. And we, with Towson University, the group I was conducting, my choir was going to join forces uh, with Baltimore Choral Arts Society. And so we had a relatively limited amount of time in which to learn it. So I was going full tilt. We were in sprint mode, always in rehearsal. Got to learn it, got to learn it. Let's go, let's go, fast pace. And I will never forget as long as I live, the conductor, Tom Hall, who I, I, I count as, as one of the profession's great people for the many things he does well, uh, came into rehearsal very, uh, uh, um, he's a magnificent conductor. He's a magnificent thinker, speaker, writer. And he went through uh, um, a passage, and we were, must have been in movement six, because I remember him stopping and asking the group, so this text here, Dennis Fiat di Posaune Schalen, what does that text mean? And I went flush. I was not singing. I was sitting off to the side, because I realized I had not told my choir what those words meant. And that is... Uh, I, I now recognize and uh, that that has to be m- maybe our primary duty, even before we start getting into what these frequencies and these rhythms are. So, of course, no one in the group answered. But, of course, it was, a, uh, and he was looking at them, and, a, you know, you could hear crickets in the background because not anyone was uh, saying anything. And he said afterward, okay, well, is there any place in music history, uh, any other famous pieces that have this text? I wouldn't have been able to answer that myself, and only to learn as I was piecing things together, uh, the trumpet shall sound is what that German text refers to, and oh, of course, that appears very prominently in Messiah, as yeah. well, more, more signature arias. So here were two great teaching opportunities that I had completely swung and missed on, and at an institution that prides itself on its education program. So that was a great, <laughs> it, it didn't feel so great at the moment, and he was very courteous, and he didn't, he didn't browbeat, he didn't get upset, he didn't get ruffled, he kept moving on, he recognized the situation, and um, Tom, if you're listening for that, I thank you very much. <laughs> but, uh, if I could do that one over again, man, I would have, I, I would have started, with the, started with the basics. And I, I, I was so impressed with how he stepped away from the intensity of learning this and was asking a more fundamental question. What are we singing about? And is there some way I can connect this to another great piece? And then we realize, oh, yeah, <laughs> these two pillar pieces of music, which we uh, um, on their surfaces are more different than the same. Mm-hmm. My goodness, they do have some shared some shared text. And we can listen to how two different composers set that same text the same way. So that was number one, and so now I am, as a more responsible teacher now, that is a more, much more integral part of what I do, making sure that the students, most often on their own time, are writing in 
uh, the translations of scores that we provide for them. But I sure as heck I'm going to stop and ask students from time to time, what does this text mean that we're singing? Mm -hmm. And make sure that we're keeping it real and that we're, we're uh, stepping back a little bit from the frenzy of, of learning music to make sure we, uh, if not fully understand it, at least appreciate it, some of it contextually. You know, it's, it's funny because, you know, composers start with text, and, I, and I, I wonder why a lot of choral directors just jump into notes and rhythms. Like, we should just all start with text. Let's just all, I mean, and, and we have in, in public school nowadays such an emphasis on, on language arts literacy skills and stuff, and you have these amazing opportunities to jump into some incredibly gorgeous text. And, and uh, I forget, there's a term I used when I was a public school teacher, um, for it was kind of like a deep dive. I forget what they called it. It was like a sort of a deep dive into into text. Um, oh, they call it deep reading or something mm-hmm, like that. Mm-hmm. And and where you know you you paraphrase line by line, you know what the writer's intention was and things like that. And it's like that kind of that kind of text based learning. Um, is what I did with my choir, and and every time I really, you know, it was there was a lot of positive reinforcement in doing that because you know it'd be a group of eighth graders, and we'd be we'd be we'd all be in tears by the end of of the first rehearsal on that piece because we didn't touch a note, and we only did mm-hmm. text, mm-hmm. we only spoke about text and what that meant in the context of our lives and things like that, and it just made the notes and rhythms so much better when we finally added them to the because there was like less rehearsal that we had to do. Right. Right. Well, I, I mean, what you're describing is a perfectly good, maybe the best way to do it. The, the analogy I use for this process sometimes is, is, is visiting an art gallery. Um, my, well, let me step back. From the musical side, my favorite thing to do, Robert Shaw called um, uh, reading, uh, reading at sight, uh, I, I can't remember, it's something like uh, love at first sight singing, <laughs> and which I... I have that image has stuck with me. I do think there's a moment of specialness of singing through a score, top to bottom, if possible, with no introduction. Mm-hmm. Let's go. Now, not all of us have choirs that can do that, but my choir might be able to speak through a text mm-hmm. in rhythm, or they might be able to sing through a text on uh, on a neutral syllable. Um, and and then I like once the group is getting some familiarity with a piece, it's at that point that I like to step back because then they have a musical context mm-hmm. with which to start appreciating some of these things. And I don't think there's a right or wrong way to do this. No. But the analogy I use is going to mm-hmm. an art gallery. If I'm gonna, I'd like to open the door to this particular wing of the gallery and let the students walk in and just let uh, let the art hit them, so they can have a sort of visceral reaction to it first, maybe walk around this sculpture, maybe look at this painting from a couple of different angles before I start talking about it. If I, if I keep them outside of the room and say, okay, now here's what you're going to see in here, uh, this is what this looks like, and start looking at it from this angle, I might take away that special moment of the first sight of something. So my preference, if, the, if I have a choir that can handle it, is just to bang through something, to sing through it straight through if, if we're capable of it. And then gradually to go back and to spend more time asking a student to read the text aloud, to talk about what the text means, all of which has the great benefit. Um, I mean, we're I, clearly we're all preaching to the choir directors here, but has the has the benefit. You're of, preaching oh, to Choir Nation, Paul. Yeah, Choir Nation. Forgive me, Nation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all of which has the benefit, especially in my uh, 
subspecialty of collegiate choral conducting, I've got singers who are most focused, rightly so, on their solo voices. Mm-hmm. And I need to be careful which how, with how much singing we do. So if there's anything I can do in rehearsal to lighten their load, i.e. take five minutes from me talking about a text or asking them to talk about a text. So this is a gain for the singers, If uh, not only because it starts working a different part of our brain, I'm not worried about getting this 16th note uh, pickup just right, but I'm looking at a bigger picture. That works a different side of the brain, lets me relax musically, maybe lets my posture relax a little bit, and I'm going to uh, shut down the voice for 5, 10, 15 minutes, whatever Mm -hmm. it is. So so many benefits to doing this. But at my age, uh, and it, it's interesting, your question about why don't we all go straight for the text, and I, 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 I think you're right. I think we should. For me, my interest in music, uh, or one of my strengths, fortes, I guess, is, is, is harmony. I, was, I enjoyed playing in rock and jazz bands, and so I've always been interested, and as a bass singer myself, in the roots of the chords and what are the chords that, of which I'm singing or playing the roots. Um, So that was some of my avenue into music. When I was learning choral music for the first time, I would be looking for the harmony. I would say, do I like this harmonically? And so that was the first thing I looked at in measure one instead of the text. Now I'm a little bit more grown up and I will open that score. But the first place I'll look is the inside left flap and see if, first of all, is this edition responsible enough to have presented me the text in its literary form so that we can appreciate it uh, better. And then I'm going to I'm going to spend some time with that. First thing. Now, Paul, and, and take note, publishers, by the way, on that left flap. <laughs> Please. No, that makes me so mad when I, when, I, cause I, when I have to look it up and then I find some terrible website that, that doesn't actually put it in the, right, in the right form. You know, some weird lyrics website or something like that. Yeah, show me what it was meant to look like. All right, side note. Um, but you said you had another story. I, yeah. D- do you want to go into that? I do. And, okay. Uh, because in, I think it... It, uh, the first one I would put failure with a lowercase f. This one I think was failure with an uppercase f. I had the opportunity at, at my most recent position to conduct the premier choir there for one semester. I was associate director of choirs, uh, but for a sabbatical semester I had the opportunity to conduct the most select choir there for one semester. I couldn't wait. I got all of my someday scores, the, you know, the cream of the crop, Uh, most challenging, interesting, rich, detailed music that I hadn't had the opportunity to do because I hadn't yet had an ensemble capable of doing it. (laughs) I threw about 60 minutes of that kind of music onto one program, and it was too much. And uh, we sang that concert scared. We got through it. I had to cut a few pieces, but I never once that semester connected with those students, except for one opportunity that had nothing to do with that performance when we were in a master class situation and I was being critiqued as a conductor and I let myself go a little bit doing something goofy that I normally wouldn't do and the singers responded to that instantly and they applauded. I didn't, um, and, and the reason, but the reason it was a big failure is because I didn't do, I, I didn't teach well. I was, I was in the same sprint mode as I was back when I was preparing the Brahms Requiem. We have to learn this, and this is hard. And my attitude with them was, hey, you're the best choir in an elite institution in this country. Aren't you capable of that? Instead of think, hearing, as any good teacher should do, what are my resources here? How good are we? 
and how can I best get them to the next level? Some of that has to be reducing the load. I need to mm. remove some pieces if, if that needs to happen. I need to give them sectional rehearsals. And what I learned in the end of semester evaluations from these folks who I assumed were sort of we're business. Come in and conduct us well. Um, be clear with us. Tell us what you want. And then we go home. Wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. They are human beings. They are musicians. They are artists. And they're interested in this finished composer who's knockout difficult music I had given to them. Mm -hmm. They are interested in this double choir piece that uh, um, modulates all over the place. They're interested in people and life. And if I, I lost every opportunity almost I had to connect with those folks because I went in with, a, we, we, I think we almost had a little bit of a defiant relationship because I was thinking, you all need to be better than you are. And I'm sure they were thinking, you all, you better start connecting with us, Mr. Man, because it is not happening right now. So um, the, if there's one the semester I'd like to have back, it is that one. And the, but the lesson couldn't have been more clear that I was not giving them the resources to succeed. I was giving them music that was too challenging. I was not giving them enough opportunity to have sectional rehearsal because my mindset was, you shouldn't need it. Mm. You shouldn't need it. But I also wasn't making clear, here are my expectations. I need you all to learn on your own these pieces and I'm gonna hear quartets on you know next week, which would have not endeared me to the group, but at least it would have made clear what the expectation was. So I think both of those two examples of failure, and this one, I, in my opinion, was uppercase F, had to do with not getting the bigger picture of what I do, not getting the bigger picture of myself as a teacher, mm -hmm. meaning a facilitator mm -hmm. of excellence. I, if I'm going to have expectations of my singers, I have to give my singers resources. I have to give them strategies. I have to give them tools to get there, or I, I should hang it up. Do you feel like you didn't represent yourself well in that? I mean, in, in, absolutely. I, I, and they didn't get a good picture of Paul Raritan. They did not get a good picture of me because I I, uh, I didn't let up on them because yeah. I didn't step back because I didn't show humility because I didn't show humor. All of which I think I normally do fairly well, but it had mostly to do with my own misunderstanding of of who they were. Have you told them that? Sorry to interrupt you, but have you have you told them that? Have That's, you? Have you yeah. gone back? Have you gone back to their director and said, "This is how I feel about that semester"? I, you know, I, 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 we must have talked about it. I mean, he would have been at the concert, and I'm sure he heard just how how scared we were singing. Mm -hmm. um, God bless them; they they pulled it pulled it out. You know, pulled out something to to sing as well as they did. Um, the one time I I had a chance to get real with them was slightly awkward because there was one rehearsal after this concert at which we do end of semester evaluations, mm -hmm. at which time I as the faculty member need to leave the room while they do these. And I didn't want to bias the students about what they were going to write. What I wanted to do more than anything was get on my knees and apologize to them for that semester mm -hmm. to sort of uh, share with them how I felt I had, had let them down so they could see. And, and enough of these students I worked with. So enough. you didn't do that? I didn't because I thought that would bias the evaluations. I didn't want them to them to think, oh, he's just saying that, so we'll we'll write him a nicer evaluation. I thought that would have been cheesy. And in that sense, I I I, I don't regret that decision. I think that was the right decision. Um, but do you think do you think maybe does that make you look at uh, your you know newer situations, more recent situations differently? I mean, have there been moments where well, obviously. You know, maybe in your in your work now, you're going to be a little bit more careful about programming a balanced program and things like that. But but um, do you feel as though there's 
a benefit to being vulnerable and not perfect in, in oh front my. of your choir? I, I think it's, I think not only is there a benefit, I think it's a necessity. I mean, this might be jumping ahead a, a little bit and what things you want to talk about, but... Well, jump ahead. We're fine. The, the best summation I've seen of what an effective conductor teacher can do came from Chuck Robinson at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, a magnificent teacher. <clears throat> and he has what he calls, and I'm stealing it from him, so if you ask him to do this, he's not going to be able to do it, except okay. by referencing me now, <laughs> even though it's his. He called it the Gumby Creed, as in the Saturday Night Live, you know, um, cartoonish character. Yeah, and Pokey, right? Yeah, the little yeah, green exactly. guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And it is be humble, be respectable, be flexible. And the, it's the flexible part of things that is the, um, the, the Gumby part of it. Oh, things. I see. But, but the fact that the first thing out of the gate is be humble. Yeah. Think about the power of that for a new teacher, for a young teacher. When what our models of the people we've seen on the podium are people, are authority figures, are people who knew that what they were doing and they were brilliant at what they did. And we assumed we had to be that right away. And, and that was all about authority. Well, some of that is certainly true. But if I don't every now and then say, my bad, or say, I, I, I can do this better, or my apologies for not being clearer, uh, then my stock goes up because at the end of the day, for the same reason I love conducting more than composing because it's with people, what we do is with people. And I, I think there are certainly no conducting models I've ever had. I've had conductors who were, who were uh, semi-tyrants before, but who were so good at what they did that we all went along right. with them. But the majority of people that I've worked with have had some visible... Uh, sense of humanity to connect to the singers. And, and I think, so I, I love that be humble is the first thing. Mm -hmm. The second thing, be respectable and, and not be respectful, but of course that is also true. That's the flip side of that. That's saying when you get up on the podium, you need to be worthy of respect. That means you are prepared. Mm -hmm. That means you have rehearsal techniques to get this done. That means uh, the, the, the buildings or the cities or the country's leading expert on that piece at that very moment is you. <laughs> right. And then finally, be, and, and I think that's underappreciated. I, I, I think if I'm going to get down a little bit on our own profession, I think choral conductors sometimes deserve the bad rap we get for not being as prepared for rehearsals as our instrumentalist colleagues. Oh, they wing it. I think there's a lot of winging going yeah. on. It drives me crazy. I, I think if, if the conductor is sight reading, you are not being respectable. And yeah, sometimes we have our days and weeks where we just need, all I'm thinking is, okay, I just need to be one rehearsal ahead mm -hmm. of them in terms of my preparation. Well, I now use my summers as my score study time, and I am in that library faithfully getting ready for that moment so that I can focus more on the teaching and the connecting once the semester hits. So I, that be respectable and then be flexible. Of course, you've got your lesson plan, but you also need to read your group. If it's midterm week and they're struggling, the plan I brought in for them might not work. I yeah. might need to be able to punt. So I, I be humble, be respectable, be flexible. I, I can't imagine a better uh, overall approach to, to what we do. I think it's great. And the, the, the respectable thing, like, like I said, like you were saying, is, is such an important aspect of, of that creed because... I mean, I can remember. I mean, I'm I am so guilty of winging it. So guilty, you know. And I think it's you get this false sense of security 
when you're an adult and you teach kids, let's say, for mm-hmm. example, and you're like, oh, well, I mean, I can be a chapter ahead because, I mean, they'll never be a chapter behind right. because they're kids <laughs> and I'm an adult and I'm, I have a degree and da 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 yeah. But um, it's almost opposite. It's almost, you know, if the, younger, the younger group I teach, the more prepared I need to be because there's going to be a lot, potentially a lot more variables in that in that teaching situation, there may be, um, I, and I, I think there's always that positive reinforcement, and I don't know why I never listened to it, but <laughs> there's always that positive reinforcement. When you come in, you really know your stuff. Oh, man. It makes the energy in the rehearsal that much better. I mean, you're just on, a, you know, you can be on, a, you can be on fire mm-hmm. in a rehearsal when you really have a plan. You know, even if you don't stick to it, at least, at least you obviously, you know everything so well that you can, yeah. you can fire on all cylinders. But then there's, and I know, and I'm speaking only on my experience, but when I'm unprepared, I'm not as engaging. I'm not as motivated. You know, it's, it's so hard. It's so hard to, you know, and then you get like resentful to your choir. Like, why are you giving me no energy? And they're, and, (laughs) and they don't, they don't know it. They don't know it, but they're, they're essentially subconsciously looking back at you and go, going, why didn't you put any time into preparing this piece? Sure. Sure. Well, every, every measure that our eyes are in the score is a lost opportunity to connect with somebody. Even and even if the group is sight reading, they'll they'll know if if I'm if I'm as we're sight reading through, if I'm showing them a dynamic, if I'm showing them a phrase, then I'm instilling in them the expectation that they're not just going to sight read accurately but mm-hmm. expressively as well. And then we're all operating at a level of uh, as high a level as we possibly can. And I have a chance. To, uh, to look every singer in the eye at some point in that rehearsal. That's something, frankly, I'd really like to do better with but mm-hmm. when, when I'm on my game. And actually, that's a good litmus test to see how well prepared I am. Oh, yeah. Is can I catch, within the first 15 minutes of the rehearsal, catch everybody's eyes and sort of lock for a minute, mm-hmm. just, for, just for a second. Mm-hmm. Make sure we're making some kind of connection. So the Gumby Creed, really, and in, in, in the overarching uh, theme here is really just to lead by example. Absolutely. It's really just to lead by example. And uh yeah, I, I, I like this. Gumby Creed. Well, Chuck Robinson, he's he where is he st- is he at Still University of Missouri, Kansas, Kansas City? Oh, and and I, I I shouldn't use his his nickname, Charles, is how he would he he would be listed on his website, but he is but but Did he, he did he replace um Eve Ely? No, he has been the I, I don't know his actual title, but I think he has been the so associate uh, director of choirs for many years, or it's possible. I mean, his position may be primarily in music education, and I I, I don't know this. But, oh, okay. Um, I'm I, I believe it's a hybrid position in choral activities and music education, but but he's uh, he's got both both chops working beautifully, and and that was it was eye opening to me, uh, and I probably used his his, uh, his um, nickname Chuck just because he inspires that kind of collegiality with his with his personality. I'll never forget him in a conducting masterclass situation at this same conference where I heard this lecture saying, and just, I, I don't know where he's from, but he has, I think, maybe just a little bit of Southern in his, uh, in his speech, or he did for this when he was encouraging uh, volunteers to come up to conduct. And he mm-hmm. said, I promise you, I will make you look so good. <laughs> and I just thought, that's, that's great. That's exactly what somebody who's terrified, you know, needs, needs to hear. Uh, <laughs> teach yourself of him, uh, focusing on the positive. Well, I, I want to do this really, really quickly. Yeah. That way we can that way we can move forward because we're running a, we're running a little long, but that's okay because yeah. this has been all sorts of gold. Right. So 
Um, what was your proudest musical moment to date? Um, early on, I would say it was um, conducting Haydn Creation at Towson University. That was my first real crack at a major length choral orchestral work, and it went extremely well. And I was just uh, proud of having been able to bring both a chorus and an orchestra to that, to that point. Uh, and it's such a satisfying piece that that, that uh, brought great joy. I will have to say that an, another one happened very recently with, with my Temple Singers this, uh, this last week performing at the National Collegiate Choral Organization. Challenging program of music by Vincent Persichetti and stuff that isn't always, uh, not all toe-tapping music, let's put it that way. <laughs> heady, some of it heady and cerebral stuff, and I, I couldn't have been more pleased with how they made the, a piece that can seem academic. I thought very approachable and very uh, jump off the page. Uh -huh. um, so an early one and a late one. Hard for me to choose between uh, children that I love. <laughs> so, okay, the, your forte segment. Yeah. This is our second segment, and I feel like we've definitely delved into that already. Yeah. Um, and I, I know that my guests always come with an idea of what they believe that is, and it's it's kind of hard to... It's kind of hard to be like, well, I'm really great at this thing, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. But, um, you know, it's it seems as though uh, from our, our conversation here, um, I have a, a hunch as to what that forte is, um, and I really feel it. I really feel as, as though it has to do with um, connection mm -hmm. to the singers, to the music, mm -hmm. um, and uh, kind of following this Gumby creed. Mm -hmm. uh, a bit. Um, wh what do you believe? Because I didn't ask you. What what right. what were you coming prepared to sort of to speak about? I was coming to say passion or inspiration. So I I'm I'm pleased that, to hear you say that the that the connection was was what you um what, was what resonated with you, and I I think unfortunately that that's a hard thing to just go out and buy, uh, but I do think you're I, saying passion or yeah yeah. But, you know, I think we all have different pie charts of various basic skills that we all need. We mm -hmm. all need some clarity. We all need some expression. We all need preparation. Mm -hmm. um, we all need some sense of how, you know, sort of style period practice, whatever it is, a sort of musical context and historical understanding. We all need that. And we all have that in different strengths. We need some public speaking. We need some writing. I think I'm good at all of these, less good at some, and I don't know that I'm great at any of them. But I think that package of being good at a number of things, and uh, I hope that's not immodest to say that because I don't think I'm especially great at any one of them, but I think that that sort of overall pie chart lets me walk, just as you were saying, uh, walk into a rehearsal and be spontaneous mm -hmm. and, and, and have a connection. And I, I, I think I have a... On my good days, I have a decent sense of humor, and that can help break down some barriers and, and help connect with with the singers. And, I, and, and I'm and i at most at ease using that when I am extremely well prepared. So I think that, uh, I, I think if, you know, my forte is that I'm a jack of a number of trades. Mm -hmm. If I'm master of any, I, I would say that it's inspiration. I think that is is something that I'm able to... Do and and some of that again going back to your sense of vulnerability. If I let myself show the love I have for this music and this composer, and sometimes to the point of you know my eyes getting teary in rehearsal, then the students are seeing a model for someone just letting himself go to the art. 
and all of a sudden no longer just being a just being a facilitator but being a more direct conduit i mean we talked about semiconductor i, and I like that analogy for what we do as conductors because in in that sense in the uh, um, the electrical sense we're not at the top we're in the middle we are transmitting something from something to somewhere else and in this case we're transmitting a score from a composer to an audience or to our singers and we are the middle person in that and that brings humility, but it also uh, brings opportunity to um, to connect, to be vulnerable, to uh, to share to share the joy that I have with this. So yeah, passion, inspiration, uh, and I've had conductors who were great who weren't that way. Mm -hmm. And you know what? That's okay. Right. If if you, there are different ways to do great things. Um, all right. So you were saying, you know, you can you can really show love of of. Um the music through adequate preparation, through gaining, gaining these different components. Um, how do you show love for your choir? Mm. Well, that's a great question. Um, I think I think you need to have compassion for them, and I think that can come in a couple of ways. Number one is learn their names, and I think that is no no better thing you can do as a young teacher than than put an absolute fast track priority on learning your students' names because they need to know that they are individually appreciated in what is otherwise sort of a corporate group setting. Uh, I need to respect their time. I need to start on time and I need to end on time. Um, I need to understand that they are here in a community of learning of which the, their choral experience is one tiny fraction. Right. So even though it's my entire job for them, it's just part of what they do. And the more I can connect it to the other things they do and also help rest their voices as best I can, some semesters I do that better than others, um, the, then the, the more that I'm uh, responsibly um, helping them get through a semester giving them time off when I can. We've, we have a little bit of a taper week this week after, after a busy travel week last week. All of these things, uh, you know, buy them pizza from time to time. All of these li are little things that I think uh, can go a long way. You can basically buy anybody's love with pizza. <laughs> I mean, as far as I'm concerned. But, um, but you know, so I, 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 in, the, in the entrepreneurial world, we have a, we have a couple... A couple things that I want to touch on because you said, you know, I don't want to, you know, I don't want, you, you didn't want to like sound too boasty or un, un, non, unhumble, unhumble. <laughs> right. Is that, is that anything? Sure. I'm okay with that. But I think there's a, there's a, a major point that I need to drive home about, about um, um, believing in your value and what you bring. Like if you're a prepared conductor, you're a learned conductor. You have to believe. You have to believe in what you bring to the table, or else nobody is going to believe in you. Amen. You know, so there's there's that, and so I think it's okay to brag. Quote. I mean, I don't want to call it bragging, but it's okay to say, you know what? Damn it, I am prepared. Mm -hmm. I am always prepared. I'm respectful of time. I buy pizza when we need to buy pizza. I, you know, <laughs> and so forth, and and believe in the value that you bring. And I think if, um, but. Um, but part of the, a component, part of that value, is is respect for the situations that your choir uh, your, your choir is in individually. Um, because I mean, nowadays, you know, in, even in, in public school, with the with the incredible emphasis on standardized testing and the stress that the child, like children have nowadays, for us to make 
ourselves that important, you know, um, is, is, is rude to the, you know, to the, we have to be, right, we have to be uh, a, a, sometimes a break for, yeah, right. for that choir um, and uh, a place where they can feel loved, Yes, you know, when, yes. when the rest of the, the world has beaten him down. And the other thing I, I wanted to bring up is, is the idea of, uh, and this is another entrepreneurial thing, the idea of, I wrote this down, under-promising and over-delivering. <laughs> yeah. So I have this, yeah, I have this email course on, on it's a three-part course on working with Changing Voice Boys. And it's, it's just from my experience and it's, you know, and it's something where um, I want the audience to see like, wow, he, like, I didn't, I just gave him my email. I, I, I didn't know I was going to get all of this value. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you know, what are ways that you as a choral director can under promise and over deliver? Mm-hmm. Like now this could be to your That's choir. Cool. This could be to your audience, you know, and that, cause I feel like we don't, I don't know if we, if we think about this stuff enough as, as, as choral directors about the fact that like, like our, our choir is our customer, our, our customers, our audience are our customers. Mm-hmm. If we want choir to prosper in the United States and we want, we want to be on the same plane, Tim, uh, um, uh, uh, Tim from, um, ACDA, um, Tim sure. Sharp, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Speak, you know, spoke in my episode, his episode on this podcast about the idea of choir being as mainstream as yoga. <laughs> you know, them. like going to going to choir is going to be as as mainstream. I hope they wear the pants. Actually, oh man, that's going to take me weeks to shake that image. <laughs> <laughs> but um, well, anyway, but um, the I, I don't want to see Tim in those pants, though. However, um, <laughs> sorry, Tim, uh, but. You know, we have to we have to look at as choir directors. How can we underpromise and overdeliver? How can we be? Uh, how can we believe in the value that we that we bring? Right. Stop being the freaking underdog. You know, beggars can't be choosers, and that's why we're asking every everybody to be in our choir. But I I'm spending my like life now trying to teach people to say no to certain customers and yes to the right ones and uh-huh. Uh-huh. and build a culture in their program so that you have raving fans in your program not just lukewarm ones so well the, the that magnificent question as far as uh, i mean one simple way to underpromise and overdeliver with the singers one thing I've noticed young teachers doing a number of times is if they bring in a piece that's challenging or slightly different from what's normally done, to try to hype it, to try to sell it at the front end, to say, oh, you're not going to like this at first, but I promise you by concert time you're going to love it. I prefer to let the students make that discovery themselves. I will make it clear from my preparation and my energy and my joy of this music that I like it, but I'm not going to stand there and preach about it. Mm-hmm. I enjoy finding how, how a group can come around just through familiarity and from doing that. So I, I don't tend to um, try to sell the chorus on anything and just let them sell themselves or not. And well, it looks desperate. It looks desperate when look you're desperate. trying to sell like it. That. As far as the audiences, I mean, you've hit the nail on the, the million-dollar question, I think, in the year uh, 2015 about how we engage our audiences. The whole notion of a concert, you could argue, is already outdated. 
getting a bunch of people in the room at the same time to hear music that they could find online easily elsewhere. We're going to need to continue for ways to, uh, to make that relevant. I think some simple things we can do are let the audience in on the act. Let them in on some of the things we do, whether that's an in-concert demonstration of even a single chord in a piece. Uh, let's sing this chord together. Now let's see how this composer has built this chord and here's why it's interesting. And then you sort of assemble it in front of them, in front of the audience. You're sort of inviting them into your workshop mm -hmm. in a way that you can be more personal with them and the singers can, uh, 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 the audience feels as if they're enjoying something special. Pre-concert lectures, pre-concert demonstrations, anything that can break down that barrier. I guess that the, that has to be the common thing of, of under-promising and over-delivering mm -hmm. is breaking down a barrier. Maybe that barrier is the fact that the audience only claps and doesn't sing or speak. Maybe we need to do more right. with rote, rote teaching, uh, community song leading, of which we have some great people on the East Coast. Nick Page here. Um, Natanju Balati Cassell from uh, Sweet Honey in the Rock, some fantastic practitioners of doing exactly that. Maybe that needs to become more commonplace. I don't have good answers for you, but I, I will say the other th way we can underpromise and overdeliver comes down to time. If I, if my choir has enough time to prepare music well, doesn't matter how difficult, how challenging, how angular it is. If they have time to sing it well, audiences respond well to things sung well. Mm -hmm. And if I find ways to make those pieces through through my own verbal comments that are very down to earth, that don't talk about uh, you know microtones or or hemiola unless I explain it well. Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, audiences respond well to that. I, I, I have complete faith in as long as we can continue to get people to come to concerts in their ability to be inspired because, my God, what we do is ridiculous. What we do is impossible. How can 50 people not being able to touch an instrument sing eight-part harmony beautifully in tune on the same vowel? It's not possible. Mm -hmm. It isn't. And yet we do it. Right. And, and people, audiences realize that there's something magnificent because when we lock that vowel just right, overtones ring and they hit us in the gut or they hit us in, right in the forehead mm -hmm. in a way that nothing else can. And they understand that that is visceral, that that is um, of our human essence. And so, but I have to give my singers time to get to that point. If I program too much music, if I try to get too fancy, I'm not doing anybody any favors. Not the singers who will sing scared, not the audience who will applaud, you know, for par instead of, you know, birdie or eagle. Right. So. Well, it's for, it's for your head to start, but the problem is, is that in the end, it doesn't do anything good for your head. That's right. <laughs> I mean, it really does it. I mean. That's right. That's right. So, well, uh, I, you know, just if, for the sake of time, you yeah. know, um, I want to move to our Accelerando round. But before we do that, um, I, I want to take a second because um, we have a very generous sponsor of this program called, their name is KI Concerts. And Oliver at KI Concerts is, and I have become uh, good friends now, Oliver Schofield, who is their wonderful, wonderful um, owner now and uh, just really incredible. You might have remembered them as Kingsway International before they became KI Concerts, but they specialize in international choral travel and, and concerts in amazing venues around the world. So Paul, I want to ask you a question. If, if KI Concerts were to give you and your singers at Temple University a free pass to sing anywhere in the world, where where would you want KI concerts 
uh, to, uh, to bring you. This is a very smooth plug, by the way, I have to say it's good. And hello, Oliver, with whom I've had the pleasure of working and I, I think is a first-class professional. Uh, some of the more exciting I, singing I hear is coming from, from Northern Europe um, and from the Baltics. So these are places that I would really love to travel. I've done very little of this, actually, very little international uh, travel with my choirs, and I'm eager to do more of it. But the, uh, the, the composers from Latvia, the composers from um, Finland and Sweden, I think are, are doing some magnificent, unbelievably challenging work. And that's a sound that really resonates with me. So, uh, Oliver, take me there. Let's go. All right. Well, you know, I, I, I want to make sure that Choir Nation knows if they go to kiconcerts.com forward slash find your forte, there's going to be a special offer for, for members of Choir Nation only. And basically, they're going to get a free companion on their trip of, uh, if, if they get over 30 travelers, instead of getting two free companions, they're going to get three. Unbelievable. Wow. So I Jump think that that's right. I, I, I may be wrong, but I think Jump that that's... Choir Nation... They are, you know, uh, Oliver is incredibly generous with this time. I, he responds to emails at 3 a.m. I have no idea when, when, he, when he sleeps. Yes, he is probably one of the most consummate professionals I've ever met in my entire life. And, uh, and you are in very good hands with KI Concerts. So um, that, is, that, is, that is my plug, but it is, it is from experience. And uh, he's just an amazing dude, and they're an awesome company. So. Agreed. So thank you for thank you for collaborating with me on that little pitch. <laughs> but all right, so the Accelerando round um, is the little more more fast paced, you yeah. know, kind of yeah. kind of thing. So we're gonna just keep it keep the answers real short. If I feel like you're you're you're, you're falling off the rails, I will uh, get you back on. Got it. <laughs> okay. So what project are you most excited about right now, Paul? I would say um, preparing the Bach motets uh, with the Temple Choir for um, uh, for Helmut Rilling, who will join us in April for a week-long residency. And that'll be a chance for us to really delve into a, a specific time period and some masterful literature with a masterful conductor. So I've got a number of things, both with Temple and Mendelssohn Club, that I'm very excited about. But that's the one that's uh, uh, that's on my front burner now that I'm most excited about. Great. Well, congratulations, and we Thank you. look forward we're, to hearing more about blessed, that. Blessed, blessed to have him coming. Yeah, he's kind of a he's kind of a hotshot, man. That's awesome. He's, That's, he, and we have an indirect temple connection here, which is, I think why he was he was uh, made made himself available to come. But we're thrilled. That's amazing. So, what advice do you have for your younger self? Um, spend more time. Uh, thinking about uh, spend more time being a teacher and less time being a conductor value that which is not the note and the rhythm value that which is the word value that which is the person value that which is the country the tradition these things matter and these things will connect with your singers in ways that the music sometimes can but can't always in your opinion what do you believe makes an outstanding conductor or music educator Preparation, skill. You need to have some skills. You need to have a, some, some clarity and, and some expressiveness. Uh, and compassion. I, the best conductors I know care about their singers and are good people. 
but oh. but Lordy, preparation has <laughs> has to be right at the front there because I'm uh, I'm I'm on a crusade to make sure that uh, that choral conductors, especially when they stand in front of an orchestra, uh, earn the respectable label that, uh, that Charles Robinson gave us. You and you and Charles Bruffy should write a book together because he's 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 fired up right now. He'll be on the podcast soon talking right. about the same thing. Fantastic. So walk us through your uh, ideal morning routine. Wow. Uh, <laughs> ideal would be sleeping in more a little bit more than I do, but <laughs> I, have, I have certainly become a morning person. I don't know that this is ideal, but this is what I do, and it's the same thing every well, – not every day. But an ideal day uh, begins with um, stretching and then uh, a five-mile run, shower, uh, eat my Wheaties. Sometimes I mix Wheaties with Kashi Goline, so that's, that's when I'm going really exotic. And that's some fiber right there. That is some. I'm telling you what, man. That is a, <laughs> a fiber bomb waiting to happen. <laughs> and uh, then I will read the New York Times for as blessedly long as I can until I have to um, brush my teeth, uh, say goodbye to my wife, and. Wait. Cat. So, what time does it start? Well, it depends on the day. On a running day, it's now. I, now I treat myself a little bit. I get up a little bit before six, so that oh, I'm okay. running by six thirty. Um, otherwise. Um, Sometimes awake by six thirty. Again, it depends on the day. Um, then get to the train station, get on a train, and nap all the way into work. That's ideal morning. <laughs> all right. Do you, ever, do you ever miss your stop? You know, I. It's funny you mention that. I had a couple of late nights in a row this week, and I came darn close this week to uh, to going right, right through my stop, <laughs> which is the last stop on the line. But the train keeps going after that. So, but after that, you're kind of in no man's. You're line. in the yard. I'm <laughs> <laughs> in the yard. It was a close one today. Uh, or what is uh, your most favorite concert that you've attended as an audience member? Um, the one that burns in most recently in memory was uh, a year and a half ago, Seraphic Fire, Monteverdi Vespers at an ACDA Eastern Division convention. And that was some of the most expressive, powerful, elegant, prepared, artistic singing uh, it, it was one where, where everyone jumps to their feet and applauds and sort of is incapable of saying anything for a mm-hmm. while because it's so powerful. So and the recording of it is amazing. Oh, that's uh, and you know, it, well, I don't want to get off the rails here, but it's I, I think it's an exciting time in the profession to see the proliferation of excellent professional ensembles mm-hmm. thriving and giving us models of of being excellent. Well, kudos to Patrick and Seraphic Fire for that. Indeed, I'm, I'm a fan. Uh, what is your favorite personal growth and or music book? The Robert Shaw Reader. Oh, I love it. I love the Robert Shaw Reader. Yes, yes, and yes, I, yes. I have no business even saying that because I've only gotten to about a page one, page 100 because this is the most dense reading I know because about every other sentence is a jewel. Uh-huh. And I'm so busy writing it down or trying to remember it. Or, or typing it out that I, I, I just sort of got overwhelmed after a while. But talk about a cat who got in deep with his people. Mm-hmm. He wrote to them every week. He wrote right. letters. He typed, he typed letters to his choir every week. He had a sense of humor. He said, do you remember the Atlanta Symphony Chorus? It is my sad duty to inform you that your re-audition for the Atlanta Symphony Chorus has been successful. You know? Right. Things like that, that the personal touch with a high standards, demanding, but also compassionate and funny. There it is, right there. There's an article by Kevin Kelly, which is kk.org. Um, Kevin Kelly, he's an entrepreneur. 
and tech entrepreneur. He um, he speaks about a thousand true fans. The idea that if you have um, any creator, artist, musician, photographer, performer, animator, designer, video maker, author, anybody producing works of art needs to acquire only one thousand true fans to make a living. And mm-hmm. and a true fan is designed as somebody who will purchase anything and everything you produce, right? And if you have a, a thousand true fans that spend a hundred dollars a year because they love you, you're making a hundred thousand dollars a year. You're making a full time living. And I feel like Robert Shaw, um, because of the personal connection that he had with his with his choir members, with his audiences, with the people that he touched, um, had more than a thousand true fans and was able to live a very fulfilling life because of it. And I think Helen Kemp. Episode mm-hmm. four is probably somebody who also had had mm-hmm. that richness and abundance because mm-hmm. of all the value that she brought to the choral world. I'm sure she had way more than a thousand true fans that would that would you know do anything uh, mm-hmm. to support to support mm-hmm. her work. So um, very very important. Um, you know Robert Shaw is a glowing example of of that. And and he he led the league in humility always. His letters would often begin with a sort of self deprecating comment, like, uh, uh, "Well, I mean, one of his one of his um, credos was there are no bad choirs, only bad conductors." And and he's unfortunately right. And mm-hmm. and, and so he, if ever something was wasn't going wrong, he'd point the finger at himself. He'd say things like, "It accuses your conductor of not being prepared or not being ready for this and that," and always. Uh, taking taking on uh, blame if he felt it was due him. Mm-hmm. So when you think of success, who's the first person that comes to mind? In, in in any way, success, not just professional. You know, when you said that, and I, I hope this won't be a plug for my institution, but my very dear colleague and friend here, Rollo Dilworth, and uh, who has enjoying in- incredible professional success as a conductor, as a clinician, as um, um, as a composer and arranger, um, but I, I wonder if the reason I think of him first isn't because of some of these qualities we've been talking about about humility. Mm-hmm. You would have no idea if you'd met him in the airport, and that's where you're most likely to meet him. By the way, is an airport um, or an airplane? But certainly not. I see him more at conferences sometimes than here at Temple. But he is. You would never in a million years get the sense that he is the global choral. Uh, star that he is. He is too kind. He is too sweet. He is too soft-spoken, um, and uh, I, I'm I'm honored honored to work with him. So that was the first person that came to my beautiful. Mind. Well, I'm sure we'll have Rollo. I've been in touch, so I'm sure we'll yes, have him on the podcast soon. Need him, need him, and then he'll return the favor. You know. There you go. Yeah. So, um, all right. This is the big one. If you only had one concert left in your lifetime, acquire with limitless ability and access to a sold-out concert venue of your choosing, where would your final concert be, and what would be the last piece on that program? Goodness, as far as the where, I mean, why, why not let's do Carnegie Hall, just because it's Carnegie Hall, and the, but that will show my lack of imagination for, you know, <laughs> for great European concert halls because I haven't experienced them. Um, and let's end with Schoenberg, Frieda Auf Erden. Oh, I hope I hope we'll have an encore piece where we can lighten things up a little bit, but uh, that 
piece is my is on my all time wish list of things to do. I've not conducted it yet, but that was that was a piece that reeled me back into choral music in college. At a time I stepped away from it for a semester, came back to it with a, a, a obviously pretty good a collegiate choir at, at Williams College, a small liberal arts school in Massachusetts. Um, I think there's so much power in that piece. I think there's so much love in that piece. I think there's so much standing at the precipice of tonality and looking forward to what's going to happen in the 20th century, but we're not quite there yet. And by golly, we are going to end on the, the fattest, most beautiful D major chord in all of the repertoire. But the way we're going to get there and the four notes leading up to that uh, is just spine tingling to me. So it, it has to be that piece. And I don't know what we would do for the encore because, frankly, I, I think there's so much power in the, in that piece that uh, be, might be hard to follow. Just drop the mic and walk away. Yeah, you got it. Well, uh, Paul, I just want you to give the listeners some parting words of encouragement. Choir Nation, um, I know, has appreciated your interview incredibly. And uh, so what would you tell them, uh, what would you leave them with today? I would say... Um, we, we've talked about being humble, and part of being humble is recognizing that we're always students. And for all, even if you've been conducting choirs collegiately for 22 years as I have been, I'm still learning stuff daily. I'm still learning stuff from my students. I'm learning things from colleagues. And I must continuously, whenever I get the chance, put myself in the position of being vulnerable as a student, whether that means uh, going off campus to another college to observe a colleague of mine who rehearsed well. Uh, to to get some observation ideas from from that colleague, um, uh, be curious, but assume that you don't ever in your life have the whole package. Mm-hmm. I mean, you you probably not be very interesting if you did. I think it's it's you're not having that complete package that makes you humble and vulnerable. Um, but assume that you can always learn more, and take time to go. Uh, to step away from your situation. Some of the more enjoyable things for me have been to not go to work that day, but to go when I was younger, to go uh, observe Brady Allred at, at Duquesne and, and find look at his wonderful choral library and talk to him about how he got his choirs so good, to go visit Patrick Gardner at Rutgers to, uh, to do the same thing. Um, these were great moments of um, sort of reverse mentorship for me where I was declaring myself to be a student, even though I was a professional, I was going to go seek help. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think you, you are setting yourselves up for success if you assume that you need those things, that those are beneficial to you, and that you can always learn something. So, Paul, what's the best way that we can connect with you moving forward? I'm I'm still in the in technological dark ages, but uh, so email for me is is high tech. Uh, at temple.edu is the best way uh, is the best way to reach me. Awesome. Well, Paul, I know Choir Nation is even more ready to step up to their podium with purpose after today's episode. So I nice. appreciate you so much for being my guest today on Find Your Forte. Ryan, it's been a pleasure to meet you. I'm very impressed with you and uh, with this project that you have, and I wish you nothing but success. Why, thank you. All right, Choir Nation, thank you once again for listening to the Find Your Forte podcast. want to bring out a couple special announcements for you right now. Number one, I've just launched the Composer Partner Program. This is to give choral composers some free help with their marketing. If you know a choral composer who would benefit from my help, they want more commissions, they want to sell more copies, they want to learn more about marketing themselves, 
Uh, I have a free program called the Choral Composer Partner Program over at ryanguth.com forward slash composers. Again, ryanguth.com forward slash composers, or you can find that link on my social media channels as well. Also, make sure you head on over to kiconcerts.com forward slash findyourforte to grab a quote and a free companion, one extra free companion for your next choir tour of 40 or more. So please make sure you, you support them. They are a fantastic organization. Oliver, their owner, is just amazing, and their team is amazing as well. So check them out and have a great week. Thank you for listening to Find Your Forte with Ryan Guth. As always, join Ryan online at www.ryanguth.com for detailed show notes and discussions on every episode. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. Until next time, be amazing.